from Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith has counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as it had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again this morning that you are a God who speaks. And as we have just read this uh, rather lengthy chapter with lots of things that you have to say to us in it, we pray that you would open our eyes 
to the things that you are really pressing upon our hearts, um, that you would bring clarity to our minds and our hearts and our lives of the gospel of your Son and what it means to know you. Uh, we pray that you would help us as we attend unto your word, that your spirit would attend unto us this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, you know, I was thinking this week about, you know, you go through life, and as you're going through life, there's various people, and then sometimes there's various groups that you just have a sense of what you need to be in with that person or that group. So, you know, as you're growing up and you're in school, with certain groups, if you want to be in with that group, you need to be athletic. Like, you got to be fast, maybe tall, strong, you got to be athletic. With another group, it's like none of that stuff, right? You need to be maybe nerdy, like, like smart, really smart, or into like a subgenre of fantasy novels that's just like your thing, and so you can talk about the characters and the plots and all this stuff, and if you don't read literature all the time, you feel out. <laughs> um, you might also, as you grow up, uh, you know, your adult friend groups, and you realize that with certain adult friend groups, you need money. Because this group, like what they do is they travel and they go to nice restaurants. And so if you either don't have money or you don't want to spend money, you're not going to be in with that group. Our kids have been watching the movie The Sandlot over and over and over again for the last few weeks. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite movies from growing up. And it's a movie, it's a baseball movie about uh, this new kid who moves into the neighborhood named Smalls. And he doesn't fit. He's not in. He's really smart, but he can't play baseball. And so when it comes to the neighborhood kids, he's out. He's a square. The kid's a square, right? You, you've seen it, you know. He's a weenie. Oscar Mayer even. Footlong. Dodger dog. He's helpless. As we think about belonging and acceptance in relationships, how is it that we can be accepted by God? How can we belong to God and be rightly related to God? If you've been with us in Romans so far, you know that this is a central question for Paul when he's writing this letter because humanity is not right with God. We have a problem when it comes to our relationship with God because we have all turned from God. We've sinned We've chosen to worship things in the creation rather than the creator, meaning we've chosen to center our lives and spend our lives on things other than the God of the universe. So how can we be made right again? Last week in Romans 3, if you were with us, we looked at this theme, this, this rich concept called uh, the righteousness of God that's really central in this letter. And if you remember, uh, what we talked about is that God is committed to this world and his people, and he's committed to setting this world right and dealing with all that has gone wrong, which means dealing with sin and dealing with evil, but God's also committed to his people, to redeeming them and making them right with him. And in Romans 3, what we looked at last week, Paul shows how it is that God can be righteous in judging evil and sin 
and yet also show his righteousness by saving and making his people right with him, and that it all comes together in Jesus at the cross. Because at the cross, God shows his justice in judging evil and sin. And at the cross, God shows his righteousness by saving his people and making them right with him. And what we talked about just very briefly last week, but is really the main theme of Romans chapter 4, is how is it that we can receive that righteousness? How can God, the righteous judge, declare us to be in the right when we clearly are not? How can we benefit and be recipients of all that God has done in Jesus? How do we take hold of it? And Paul says, by faith. If you just scan through Romans 4 again and again, you will see the noun, faith, or the verb, believe, both which come from the same Greek root word. You also see repeatedly the term righteousness, which really connects what we looked at last week with this week, this question of how is it that we can be made right with God? How is it that we can receive what God has done in Jesus? And we see in chapter 4, why righteousness must come by faith, as well as what faith is and what it looks like. So this morning, let, I want us to consider that together as we look at this chapter. Why righteousness must come by faith, what faith is and what it looks like. So first, why righteousness must come by faith. You may remember last week uh, that the Jewish people of Paul's day, when they were considering this, this problem of human evil and sin, and how was it that God is going to judge the world and judge people and yet save his people? What, what is the thing that puts you on the side of righteousness and receiving salvation rather than judgment? How can someone be rightly related to God? And their answer was, well, the law. God's law given through Moses. But Paul has said, no. No, it's not the law. And to make his point here, Paul goes back to the beginning, to the beginning of the Jewish people, to, to Abraham, the story of Abraham. I mean, re remember, this is where it all started. Humanity turned from God in Genesis 3. They fell into sin, and from this, everything goes wrong. False worship, idolatry, wickedness, foolishness, violence, Genesis chapters 4 through 11. But then Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, out of this mess of idolatry and sin and brokenness, God takes this one man and his family, and he sets his love on him, and he makes a promise, and he says, I will be your God. Why? Because through Abraham and this family, God is going to redeem humanity. He's going to love the world, and he's going to draw people from all nations out of the confusion and evil and brokenness back to himself, to belong to him. So remember, where, where, did, where did Abraham come from? He, he wasn't this nice Jewish law-keeping man-worshiping God. He, he came from a family that worshiped other gods, like the rest of humanity. He was very much a part of the humanity that was ungodly. But God called him to himself, and he made a promise 
to bless the world through him. And this is that promise that Abraham believed. And he lived his life believing and trusting what God has said. And in Genesis chapter 15, which is the specific text that Paul zeroes in here in Romans chapter 4, he quotes it multiple times and references it. In Genesis 15, Abraham had just come back from a battle. He's lived many years now trusting what God had said, trusting this promise, even though he and his wife Sarah still have no child, which makes this whole promise seem, how is this even going to happen? How, how do I have a great nation? How do I bless the world through my family if I don't have descendants? And God, if you remember in Genesis 15, he takes Abraham outside and he directs him to look toward the stars and he says, in essence, can you count them? So shall your offspring be. And the text says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And there it is. So Paul's saying, look, it's, it's always been by faith. From the very beginning, how was Abraham counted righteous? It was by faith. It's always been by faith, and it must be by faith because being rightly related to God comes from God's gift and his promise and his grace. It's a gift. Paul's already said this in Romans 3.24. People are declared righteous by God's grace as a gift. And in 4.4, in our chapter, verse 4, he makes the same argument in essence. If you make righteousness something that you get by works, well, then it's not a gift. It's wages. You did the shift. You put in the time. You did, now it's time to pay up. But how on earth does God owe you? God relates to his creatures freely. Think about it. He made you. He's given you everything. How could you ever put him in your debt? It's a gift. And if it's a gift, it can't be by works. But it also must be by faith because of God's promise. Look at verse 13. God gives his promise to Abraham and his descendants, not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 14, if the heirs of this promise, the inheritors of this promise, are those who obey the law, well, what's happened to faith then? What have we done to faith? We've emptied it. It becomes nothing. And what about God's promise? It's invalid. See, Paul's saying that the minute that you make accepted, being accepted by God about something that you are working for or something you're achieving or your obedience, you're maintaining it by your obedience, it's no longer a gift. It's no longer about God's promise, and it's no longer about grace. Look at four, four, chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Remember where we've been in Romans chapter 1 through 3. The law reveals our sin. It reveals that we're not righteous. It shows us that the problem that maybe we would sense of, yeah, sometimes I do bad things and I don't always do the right thing. It shows us, wow, the problem is way worse than I ever would have thought. So it must be by faith because that's the only way it's going to be by grace. God giving you his favor, blessing you, forgiving you, making you right with him, 
when you deserve none of it. You deserve the opposite. See, if, and if you're tracking with Paul already, you're getting a sense of what faith is. Throughout this chapter, Paul contrasts, you know, in a sense, two ways that a person might seek to be made right with God. And on one side of the contrast, there is things like works and wages and the way of the law and the way of performance. And on the other side, there's the way of faith and trust in God's promise and resting in God's grace. What then is faith? Faith is not looking to yourself or your abilities or your accomplishments or your performance, but looking to depending on, resting on, trusting God's promise, God's saving intervention. Faith is an open hand that receives God's gift of righteousness and salvation. Faith receives God's promise and trusts and looks not to what you can do to fix the situation, to control, to make it happen, to come up with the remedy, but faith rests and relies upon God who is gracious, who has made promises, who offers the gift of righteousness in Jesus. What is faith? Faith is the way, the means, the instrument by which we receive this gracious gift. Do you see what Paul is saying? As I mentioned, my kids have been to the movie The Sandlot, and there's this scene toward the beginning of the movie where the new kid, Smalls, he gets invited to come play baseball by um, the best baseball player in the whole neighborhood, Benny. Now, Smalls is already kind of a reject and a loser, and he's, dis, you know, displayed this clearly because the last time he was at the Sandlot, uh, there was a ball that went out into the outfield where he was, and he tried to catch it, but instead of catching it, it knocks him over, and all the kids just burst into laughter. So he is just humiliated, but then things get worse because he tries to throw it, and it goes like 10 feet and they all just bust into laughing, and he is crying, and he runs home full of shame. But Benny invites Smalls to come out again, and so Smalls goes, desperate to make friends, desperate to be accepted. And in the second play of this practice, Benny hits one out into the outfield to Smalls, and again, he tries to catch it, and he falls over. And then he has to, in humiliation, run the ball into the pitcher, because he can't throw, which again is just demonstrating for everyone he is a loser, he's not game, he's a lost cause. But Benny has this soft spot for Smalls, and so he runs out to him and he has this private conversation with him. Smalls is going to leave, he's saying, you know, thanks for inviting me, but I should just go home. He's hopeless, he knows it's hopeless. But Benny tells Smalls, just stick your glove out and I'll take care of it. So Benny runs back and he calls for the same play and Smalls in this quasi-religious move, very un-Presbyterian, but quasi-religious move, holds his hand up in the air, shuts his eyes, and just waits. 
Benny hits the ball, and there's like this slow motion scene where you see the ball go up, and all the kids are watching the ball, and then the ball's falling, and all of a sudden it falls right into his glove. And the music soars, and, and it's like the impossible has happened. He can't catch, he can't play, he can't achieve, he can't win acceptance. All he can do is trust that Benny is sufficiently able to do the impossible. And because he trusts and he receives it, now he's in. He's a part of the group. He's in. He's, he belongs. I want you to think about what we've been studying in Romans. You and I are smalls. Before God and God's law, we are smalls. We have failed. But our failure is a lot worse than being bad at baseball. You and I have failed at being a human being. We failed to be what God made us to be. We have failed. And even if you are a Christian, like we will continue to struggle with sin. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot put God in our debt. We are completely hopeless apart from His saving intervention. But remember Romans 3, what God has done. He's put Jesus forth as our propitiation to turn away the wrath that our sins would rightly deserve. He makes us right in Jesus. He works redemption in Jesus. He justifies us by his grace in Jesus. God does it all. How do we get it? How do we benefit? We receive it. Faith is the open hand. The open glove that receives the righteousness from God. It rests on God's promise and God's grace, the gift of redemption, the gift of righteousness, what God has done for us. Is that how you relate to God? Do you relate to God with this posture of an open hand, dependent, needy, not looking to yourself, but looking to Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. All of us live in a world where our acceptance and being in the right is so tied to our skills and our abilities and our performance. And so I just assume that we all walk into this place struggling to really believe in the depths of our hearts how God could accept us apart from us contributing to it. I mean, after all, kids, if you're in elementary school, I don't know what your school is like, but, you know, how are you rightly related to your teacher? It's if you're doing the right things. In our school, you know, there's awards for spotted being good. So, I'm not against these things, but, you know, just think about how it shapes the way we think. Like, other kids spot us being good, or the teachers spot us be a good, being good, and we get awards. Some teachers use, use colors, and so what you really want is a purple day, maybe a green day, definitely not yellow, and oh my gosh, red would be catastrophic, right? You get a little older, and you're only rightly related to the sports team if you're fast enough, if you can score enough, if you are good enough you get a little older and you're only accepted into the college and the university that you want if you can prove that you're worthy. And then you start working a job and you only go forward in your job and you only do better in life if you can perform. 
almost in every sphere of your life, your experience is, I am accepted by my performance. But what does Romans 4 say? Let me paraphrase. Who is counted righteous before God? The one who doesn't perform, knows they've failed, but looks to God, trusts God, and receives his gift of salvation in Jesus. How many times do you and I come into a place like this, into a church, perhaps feeling like garbage? Because again, in this last week, we blew it. We failed. We didn't live up. We failed as parents. We failed just in life. We failed spiritually. And does part of you ever wonder, where am I at with God? Where do I stand before God? Some of you come from certain church backgrounds where what has been communicated to you is, well, sure, God is gracious, but let's be honest, there's no coming back from certain kinds of sins, especially if we're talking about dirty ones or like sexual ones. Christianity is about learning the right morals, the biblical principles, living them out. Or your background is in a church tradition that teaches that, yeah, you need faith in Jesus, but you need faith and. You, you need faith and religious practices. You need faith and uh, these religious rituals. And, you know, you really can't ever know. You can't ever know that you're completely right with God. Not only can you know that God accepts you in Jesus by faith, but this posture of receiving from God, looking to Him, trusting His promises, is meant to characterize the entire Christian life. I mean, look at the end of this passage, verses 17 and following, where we get a picture of what faith looks like. It wasn't just this one moment that Abraham believed God. His life was a a life of faith. God had given these promises to Abraham to bless him, to make him a great nation, that through the world, the the world would be blessed through Abraham. But right, he and his wife don't have kids. And, And it's not like they haven't tried. And so they've gone decades with nothing. And yet he looked to God and trusted God. Abraham believed God, verse 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 19, when Abraham looked at his own body, which was as good as dead, and when he considered Sarah's womb, and the text literally says the deadness of her womb, he looked and he hoped to God's promise. All he could see with his eyes and his experience from the evidence was death, but he trusted God's promise. He believed what God had said. He believed in a God of resurrection. He believed that in God and he grew in faith as he continued to wait and trust and hope in this God. This faith, this posture, it's not blind. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith that looks to God, the God who has made promises, who has said things 
recorded in Scripture, who has done things in Jesus Christ. This is a faith that doesn't gloss over the world, that, that doesn't say, let me put on my rose-colored glasses and let's just try to be positive here. This is a faith that looks at death and evil and sin and sees even evidences of those things in ourselves and yet looks to the God who is gracious and who has acted in Jesus Christ and made promises. This is the faith that is meant to be the operating principle of the new humanity. The new humanity that started back with Abraham, but, but goes all the way until right now in this moment, continues for all who rest and receive God's promise in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of faith that Paul's ministry is all about. At the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, he talks about his ministry that is for the obedience of faith to be spread among all people. In chapter 1, if you remember, he says he wants to go and see these believers in Rome because he wants to encourage their faith. It's by this faith, this receptive posture toward God, that the power of the gospel breaks into a person's life as they receive Jesus and as they rest on him. And it is this faith that we start the Christian life, but we do the whole Christian life. It's faith A to Z. And this faith, this posture, is the opposite of the old humanity, the old way to be human that turns from God, that trusts in self, that worships created things, that looks to oneself and one's own strength and abilities as the thing that can control and fix and make life work. This morning, will you look to God? Will you receive with open hand His gift, His promise, the righteousness that can be yours through Jesus? I want to invite us to turn to prayer. We do this every week where we turn to God confessing our sins, asking for his help and his mercy and his grace. And I want you to think about as we do this, we are actually exercising this faith that Romans 4 talks about. A faith that doesn't have to sugarcoat over our struggles and our sins, but can honestly look to God and name those things before him because we trust in his grace and his promise to forgive us and restore us in Jesus Christ. So let me invite us now to spend a few moments in silent prayer and confession, and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer in a moment's time.